Do Christians belong in the public square? Should we check our faith at the door of political discourse? Why do these questions matter in a free society? Join us today as we talk about statecraft as soulcraft with our special guest, Dr. Francis Beckwith, professor of philosophy and church-state studies at Baylor University and author of the book, Politics for Christians. I'm Michael Hernan, Vice President of Advancement at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Welcome to Franciscan University Presents. Uh, today we're talking about Christians and politics. Uh, I'm your host, Michael Hernan, Vice President of Advancement here at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, joined by our regular panelists, uh, Dr. Regis Martin, Professor of Systematic Theology here at Franciscan University, uh, Dr. Scott Hahn, the Father Michael Scanlon uh, Professor in Biblical Theology and the New Evangelization here at Franciscan University, and our special guest, uh, Dr. Francis Beckwith. Uh, you are both a, a professor uh, of uh, philosophy and church-state uh, studies at Baylor, uh, where you also serve as the Associate Director of Graduate Program in Philosophy and the Co-Director of Philosophy uh, Studies and Religion at Baylor's Institute for Study on Religion. Uh, you have a PhD and an MA in Philosophy from Fordham. You also hold a Master's in uh, Juridical Studies uh, from Washington University School of Law. Um, you're author of more than a dozen books. Uh, you also were the uh, president of the Evangelical Theological Society before returning uh, to the Catholic Church. And you and your wife, uh, Frankie, are in uh, Waco, Texas. That's right. Yeah, that's so right. it's great to have you here. It's great to be here. Yeah. It's a delight. Yeah, so in your book, uh, you kind of begin, the, 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 the great book, Politics for Christians, um, you begin with the notion that, that Christians aren't just called to be involved in politics, but really study politics, become students of politics. You know, why is this important? Well, you know, one, one of the problems today is that when we think of politics, we usually think of electoral politics. Right. That is, people running for office, campaigning for people, voting. One of the things I want to communicate in the book is that's not the entirety of politics. What I want to do is sort of reach back into a more ancient understanding of politics. That is, it has to do with life in the city or the polis. Okay. And so when I talk about being involved with politics and being aware of politics, I'm not just talking about electoral politics. It also involves understanding one's place in, the, in one's community. Uh, it involves uh, the role of the church in uh, helping the community in a variety of different ways. It means studying politics. That is the, the, the differences between, let's say, international relations and constitutional law. Uh, the, the, what does it mean to be a citizen? What kind of obligations that we, do we have? Mm. And just like uh, when we talk about the church having many parts, uh, in, 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 in different ways, citizens have different roles. And so, you know, some people may want to run for office. Some people may wa want to volunteer at the soup kitchen. Some yeah. people may want to write letters to the editor. So there's a variety of things that a person can do within the structure of a political regime. Yeah. I want to comment on that because I think that shift, it might seem, you know, small, yeah. subtle, but it's significant. Yeah. You know, it's sort of like, 
a switch on a rail uh, on a railroad. You know, uh, it, you know, it's just a, a few inches, but you're going to end up in you know San Diego or Bangor, <laughs> Maine. You know, yeah. uh, when you identify it that way, politics, you tap into the notion of Aristotle, that man is not only a rational animal, but a political animal. But that doesn't mean you're either a Democrat or a Republican. That's right. right. You know, it, it means that you're a member of a community and that the polis, which is the root of the, poli you know, the, of, of the political, has to do more with a kind of extended family. At least that's the ideal that you strive for in community relations. And uh, this has to do with education. It has to do with, you know, charitable works as well as uh, the church, as you say. And, you know, that little shift that seems so small ends up being massive, you know. Yeah. You know, and especially in our day and age because everything is reductionistic. Everything is, are you Democrat, are you Republican? Do you watch CNN or Fox? Yes. Yeah, and that yeah. sort of thing. It, it's not a simple point at all, uh, yeah. um, unless you want to endorse a kind of schizophrenic view of the yeah. human person. We really do belong in two worlds and we have to somehow shape our lives uh, in, a, in a fashion that is integrated and harmonious. I mean, the ancient distinction is, is that I'm in the world, but I'm not supposed to be of the world. Right. I mustn't be enamored of the spirit of the age because I'm, this is no lasting city. I'm called to transcend time and space. Uh, uh, Clement, in his first letter, Pope St. Clement to the church at Corinth, begins by acknowledging we are a church in exile. And of yes. course, they're under the burden, uh, the pressure of constant persecution. But, but implicit in all of that is the admission that we're in the world. We're not disincarnate spirits. That's right. We're embodied spirits. And so the world has to make provision for us. And we have to somehow fit the world into our uh, perspective. That, that, that means politics. That's right. I mean, if you think, uh, think about uh, just what we're in, told to do by Christ, to love our neighbor as ourself, yeah. what does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> it, it means to will the good of the other. Hmm. And depending on one's cultural and political circumstances, that could mean a variety of different things. So, for example, I, I've used this in class at Baylor. Say, uh, you'll often hear... Uh, citizens who, who, let's say, want to influence, let's say, a, a policy on a school board, and, and someone will say, well, you know, um, you, know the, you shouldn't in any way, as a, as a Christian, shape policy, uh, or you shouldn't be suggesting these particular points of view because you're sort of forcing your views on others. But yeah. what's often ignored, or, or the response is something like, well, you know, the government is not forcing you to do it. Uh, and uh, so, so I'll give, give you a, a more concrete example. The years ago, I remember watching a, a show, of, uh, an episode of the old Phil Donahue show. I don't know if you guys <laughs> remember that. And there was a, there was a, a dentist who, was, uh, who had complained about the show uh, and, uh, and apparently wrote advertisers who wound up pulling their ads from the show. And so Donahue brought his, his show to San Antonio, where the dentist lived. To, to, to have a whole week of episodes. The dentist was invited, didn't show up, but there were people there who, had, who agreed with the dentist and some who disagreed. So during the question and answer se section where, where, where Donahue would walk out with his right. microphone, yep. <laughs> he, 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 asked, uh, he went to the first person who had raised her hand and, and she said, well, the dentist doesn't have to watch the show if he doesn't want to. And it was great, there was a Catholic bishop on stage oh, who immediately God. responded, he said, 
But the dentist isn't just concerned about him and his children. He's yeah. concerned right. that his children may grow up to date the children whose parents <laughs> right. are not forbidding yeah, yeah, right. them from yeah. watching the show. <laughs> And I just thought that was a great insight into the, the idea that, that we live, that there's a kind of moral ecology. Right. And, right. And, and, that, and that what we may be interested in is not so much, I mean, even if you take a kind of narrow view that we should just be concerned about ourselves and our own sort of development right. as Christians, even if that's all you're concerned right. about, that means that you should be concerned right. about your neighbor because that does affect the way it, in which it, your it, children It's a kind of evangelical uh, impulse, I, I think. I That's mean, right. this dentist is not interested only in filling the cavities of his kids. <laughs> yeah. uh, he wants to somehow spread out and expand uh, right. his art. Uh, and he's, he's willing to do root canals even on Phil Donahue. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and, so, yeah. And, and really when we look at politics, that's what we're talking about here. It's more than just about my own uh, personal uh, concerns, but it's, yes. it's about the, the the body politic, the larger community uh, that we have. You know, so as we look forward, kind of giving us a politics 101, if you will, sure. looking really more not as an activist in politics, but the understanding of more political science. Yeah. You know, when we look and hear the term liberal democracy, yeah. now, why is that a, a term that might be uh, more favored uh, today, or why would a Christian be more interested in that form of uh, uh, approach to politics? Sure, let, let, let's define a liberal democracy yeah. because oftentimes, uh, when people hear the word democracy, they tend to think of it as kind of uh, voting on everything. Yes. You know, yes. kind of majority rules. And uh, but my understanding of liberal democracy, and the one that I, I that I present in my book, Politics for Christians, is uh, democracy is linked to the idea that citizens should be treated with equal dignity and respect, and that democracy, uh, that is to say, representative democracy, has is a component of that, but can't at the end of the day be the only component for a variety of reasons. One, if you have a kind of uh, a system of government where everything gets voted on, what'll happen is you can have a tyranny of a majority. And this is why the American founders uh, only have one component, at least initially, in the House of Representatives, right. uh, being the component of directed elected officials, a Senate that was one step removed from the electorate and then an executive branch and a judiciary uh, that, were also, that were even uh, more further away from from right. di from direct election, and the and the and the idea behind it was that uh, that human beings cannot be trusted with absolute power. Yeah. yeah. And so even though uh, unless it, they're federal judges. That's right. Well, you know, it's interesting you bring that up, Scott. I mean, there's a we have changed clearly, okay, yeah, and the changes yeah, have shifted. been, I think, in ways that are a judicial uh, tyranny. Th that's that's yeah, right, and, right, and 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 especially on issues of great controversy over which reasonable citizens disagree, and that's yeah, why because if majorities vote for a definition of marriage, that's right, that could be overturned in a day. But Absolutely. but but the defect that you've yeah. seized upon that can invalidate democracy applies also to every other system, every other that's competing right. creed, uh, aristocracy, monarchy. Nobody can be trusted. That's, that's right. I mean, that's right. That was Lord Acton's point. That's right. Power tends to corrupt, yes. but absolute power corrupts absolutely. That, that's right. And so, you know, part of it, you know, and it's something I think that we, we just haven't really appreciated because things have generally gone very well in the United States uh, since its founding, it was, of course, except the Civil War. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. But generally, because there's been a culture uh, that is to say, you know, people obey the law because 
you know, they're sort of enculturated to, to believing that that's the way in which we should conduct ourselves. But I raise this question to my students. I say, you know, there's only one president and what, 535 members of, right. of Congress. You know, if they disagree with them, why can't they just walk down Pennsylvania Avenue and just, you know, say we're in charge, there's more of us, yeah. right? Well, pro the reason is that there's, they've been enculturated into this understanding that the separation of powers is important for the, for the common good for civil society. And we, we sort of take this for granted and we, we don't, I mean, we don't appreciate the fact that there are governments in the world that, are, that have been put together to emulate ours where it doesn't succeed. Yeah. Why? Because there's not a civil society, which is not the government. That's right. You know, a, a couple things. Number one, I, I think the, the point that we made a few minutes ago is crucial, that we are in exile. Clement yeah. said yeah, it yeah. so well back in the first century. Another point that we have to emphasize, and that is, we're not just isolated individuals, we form a social body. You know, Paul speaks of the church as a, the body of Christ supernaturally, but long before Paul, the Stoics spoke of society as being a body politic. And so we're interrelated, you know, like that bishop said on the Phil Donahue yes. show. I think we also have to recognize the good of democracy, but not absolutize something that is only a relative good, because it isn't as though Thomas Aquinas or Bellarmine who advocated monarchy or aristocracy along with democracy in a mixed order were Pelagians who thought that power was safe in the hands of monarchs. No, I mean the fact is this Augustinian notion that humans are weak and sinful, you know, permeates those who recognize that the family writ large is precisely what a monarchy, aristocracy, and democracy enshrines. And, right. and so I think it's time for Catholics to get involved in the political order such as it is, but at the same time to stop preventing themselves from longing for something better and more Christian and more Catholic. Because I, I think deep down most Catholics are in exile but don't know it. Yes. They're part of a body but don't think that way. Yeah. And they, they, they're not in a Catholic order. But they don't even want to be. Yeah. You know, well, it's so bad in the past. Well, sanctifying my soul is hard enough. Yeah. Sanctifying the temporal order is not going to be any easier. <laughs> but I'm not going to stop doing that because it's hard any more than I'm going to stop trying to sanctify my own soul and yeah. body yeah. because of the degree of difficulty. You know, it, it could be that it's sort of a distraction to focus only on the inherent deficiencies of democracy and say, look, we've got to get rid of it. We need to usher in something more uh, genuinely Catholic. The, the fact is we have democracy, we're stuck with it. Yeah. So maybe uh -huh. we should flood uh, the voting uh, polls with yeah. Catholics yeah. so that 50% plus one can sort of shape the ethos that governs our lives. I mean, that might be a solution. <laughs> right. Yeah. I do think that democracy in some ways is a kind of um, sleight of hand because, you know, it isn't an accident that federal judges have just usurped the kind yeah. of will of the majority. You know, I think democracy is a rhetorical veil that covers up the yes. degree of corrupt aristocracy yeah. Yeah. and even more corrupt, yeah. you know, monarchy which has right. become, become tyrann tyrannical. Yeah, and so we've got a lot uh, to unpack with this, I can you see. You know, <laughs> and, and so, you know, as we go to the next segment, um, uh, I want to talk a little bit more about the relationship of the church and the state, and, and even the notion of the separation of church and state. Stay with us on Franciscan University Presents. For me as a Christian uh, in the world today, it is the most important thing to uh, go into the world knowing that my Christian values are at the foundation. And I believe that that's absolutely necessary for anyone in the world today. Um, for the political sphere, uh, for me personally as a journalist, I believe that the Christian um, faith should be the foundation 
of everything that we do. Um, because the world kind of looks down on us today as being biased if we're Christian. I know that journalists tell you that you should be a journalist first and a Christian second. But in reality, I need my Christianity to be at the foundation because I need it to be a set of ethics that determines and defines everything that I do. People recognize Franciscan University as being academically excellent and passionately Catholic. We have the unique opportunity through our faculty members, through our students, to proclaim that academic excellence by reaching out in many different ways. We also remain passionately Catholic in the way in which we are able to worship, the way in which we are able to bring that love of Christ to others on a daily basis. It's important for us to be able to embrace both. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We're talking about Christians and politics with our special guest, Dr. Francis Beckwith. Um, Frank, we've been, we've been talking about politics and how it's bigger than simply just voting, uh, although that's very much a part of it, but a bigger uh, subject matter here. But as we look at Christians, I think one of the things that we often come to is the idea of church and state. Mm -hmm. And at least in America, this notion uh, of the separation of church and state, what does that mean and what is the impact really for Christians in that? Great, it's a, it's a great question and one that uh, has several different possible answers. Uh, if you go back uh, in American history, it actually goes before uh, Roger Williams actually coined the phrase or used the metaphor of the wall of separation of church and state, picked up by Thomas Jefferson uh, in a famous letter that he wrote to the Danbury Baptists. What had happened, uh, the Danbury Baptists were in Connecticut and uh, they lived in a state that had an established church. A lot of uh, folks are sort of surprised because they, they, don't, they didn't know that, most folks don't know that the early colonies and some of the early states had established churches, which just meant that the, that the tax dollars on, on the assessment on property was used to support the, the, the established church. You could still believe in anything you want. But right? the money was But the fun. money. <laughs> so, you know, I, to my students at, at, at Baylor, I explained, because they said they find that to be odd. He goes, well, how can you have religious liberty at the same time an assessment on tax? And I said, well, uh, let me give you an analogy. The public school system. Right now, you're free to send your child to a private religious school, and yet the state will still tax your property to fund the public schools. I said, you tolerate it today. Yeah. And they sort of are, are shocked. They go, wow, I get, never thought yeah, of it that way before. That only began in the 1800s. That's right. Yeah. I mean, that was unthinkable in the 1700s. That's right. So, 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 so what happened is that the Bap Danbury Baptists write this letter uh, to, they write a letter to Jefferson asking sort of their, for their support. As, as, as President of the United States, he has no power to change uh, Connecticut's law. So he says that it, maybe Connecticut someday will have in its constitution something like the federal constitution, mm. uh, an establishment clause that, f that uh, puts up a wall between the separation of yeah, church and state. But it's not state. in the constitution? No. Yeah, no. no. <laughs> and it was Jefferson's private opinion, that's right. a personal letter, that's right. et cetera. Yeah, it, it, I mean, a lot of constitutional scholars treat it as if it's like, you know, like we treat Paul's letter to the Galatians. It's like, you know, <laughs> you know it's like, law. you know, Jefferson's letter to the Danbury Baptist as if it has some sort of canonical authority. Yeah. It, it, you know, I, I raised, I've raised this in, in, the book, in the book Politics for Christians. I said, imagine if a pro-lifer were to cite Ronald Reagan's Human Life <laughs> Review article as, right. a, you know, as an authority of why Roe v. Wade should be overturned. I mean, people would think that's outrageous. I just, uh, it's just sort of a mystery to me why Jefferson carries 
Right. I mean, obviously, it, it was a it, founder, but still, it shouldn't but it be did the other, located. The other yes, clause right. in the First Amendment, uh, the free exercise thereof, uh, yes. that, it seems to me, is a Catholic invention, and it's yeah. borne out by, by the by the history of that period uh, yes. you've been describing. I mean, in Connecticut, you have a congregational church yes. which is established. In Massachusetts, you've got these Puritans, yeah, that's right. these Presbyterians. Yeah. Uh, in, in Virginia, you have the Episcopal Church. Yeah. But in Maryland, you have a free exercise yes. of religion. I mean, that's the refuge, the safe haven for Catholics who were forced to flee places like Boston. They settle in Maryland because they respect the rights of, of people to pursue their own faith right. without interference from the government. So there, there, there's a false notion of the yeah. separation of church and state. Is there a good notion? Well, of well, you know, I think in some ways, part of what Jefferson is saying, I think, is is correct. That is, if you're talking about the institutional church having uh, having sort of a separate sovereignty or authority mm. from, from the government. That, that is, that's something that no matter where one stands, let's say, on certain public policy issues, everyone sort of can agree on. But what's happened over the past generation or so, the separation of church and state, uh, as sort of a separation between the institutional church and the institutional state, has morphed into the separation of religion from politics. Right, right. right and so right. What's, happened, it, it, what's happened is the separation of church and state has become a metaphor for the divorce of faith and reason. Mm -hmm. And for a good reason, too, yeah. because there's no way you can have a transcendent standard or authority for morality apart from religion. And so if you, want to, if you want to relativize morality and make it subject to a majoritarian impulse, then the quickest and surest way to do it is to privatize religion and okay. to utilize separation of church and state to kind of shoehorn that into place. Yeah, you know? we have many people today talking about the, not the freedom of religion anymore, but yeah. a freedom of worship, uh, where you're only right. private, the, private assembly, inside the four walls you know, of the church and yeah. having no influence. You know, in the and and freedom from religion, which That's a right. lot of these secularists would like to see enshrined yeah. uh, in the Constitution, so that religion is, is silenced, so marginalized that the damn thing disappears, yeah. And, yeah. and they're not bothered anymore by, by these God people. Yeah. Now, yeah. I, I want to yeah. suggest something, sure. though, that, you know, to, to distinguish between between church and state and between religion and politics is really right. Yeah. You know, your, your subtitle is Statecraft as Soulcraft, mm -hmm. drawing from Aristotle, yes. you know, who understands the difference between soul and body. I mean, these are two different substances, and yet, in fact, they are united yes. by a person and also in society. And not only are they united, but the soul is the form of the body. Mm -hmm. And so the soul ought to be allowed to inform and transform the body. And already by the second century, long before Constantine had Christianized the empire, we have this anonymous Christian writing a letter describing how the church yeah. is scattered throughout the empire. Not like the Jews who were only in Jerusalem and Judea who had their own customs, but now in the new covenant, you know, they wear the same things, they do the same things, etc., except when it comes to morality. Yeah. And so the description of the church as the soul of the body, something that Jacques Maritain picked up yes. on and others, it's, it seems to me to allow for distinguishing between church and state, yeah. distinguishing between religion and politics, uh, like we did in the, mid, in the Middle Ages, sacerdotium and imperium, you know, mm -hmm. the, the clergy on the one hand and the political powers on the other. 
And yet a friend of mine did his doctorate on the medieval period of the 13th century, showing that you'll never find one instance of church-state language. Yes. Because the imperium, that is the political authorities, though they were lay people, they were baptized. That's they right. were confirmed. They were married in the church. They didn't think of themselves, well, they're the church because they're the clergy. We're the state because we're laity. It was a social organism. That's right. It was a yeah. sacramental well, organism. Well, the, the medium in which yeah. men lived yeah. and moved was... Yeah. The church, yeah. the faith, Christendom. I mean, church. I mean, you might as well ask a fish, yeah. what is it like? What is it like to encounter yeah. water? There's a wonderful well, the unselfconsciousness civil society. about that, right? Yeah. And, yeah. And, and and you know, obviously, the ecclesiastical leaders were different than the, the, the leaders of the government in terms of their their authority. Yeah. People distinguished the the papacy from right. the king, yeah. right? But you're right, but the king was a baptized Christian. Right, right. I think and sometimes so, our enemies understand the inner logic of our right. belief system yeah. better yeah. than we do, because it's yeah. not as though Jesus Christ is the king of kings. Oh wait, he is. Yeah. No. <laughs> it's not as though he said, go make disciples of all nations. Oh, well, he did that too, you know? Yeah. It's not just private individuals who are privately converting. There's something that is meant to be bringing about a social transformation. Right. And if we're not volunteering for it, Others are like, well, it's only a matter of time before their kids or grandkids are going to wake up and try to do again what their ancestors did yeah. before. I mean, the, the principle, I, I think, which we apply equally in something like the theology of God as we do in the theology of man is you distinguish only in order to unite. Yeah. You don't sunder the two. Faith and life go together. I mean, if you remove faith from life, then you leave man incomplete. I mean, he lives on this stage, and there ought to be provision for God, but if he can't access that dimension, then you have done violence to man. Yes. Yeah. And he ought to rise up in revolt. Well, I think that's what's precisely going on right now in, in our public culture, this attempt to, uh, I think you mentioned earlier, the, the, the whole idea of freedom to worship. Right. I mean, worshiping is obviously part of one's religious life and devotion, but it's not the entirety of it. That's right. Uh, and this was a, something I, I had mentioned at, at one of my talks at Franciscan yeah. uh, to, to the audience. We talked about the, I spoke about the HHS mandate. And uh, I, one of the points that I stressed to the audience, tried to explain to them why secularists think the way they do about, the, for example, the Catholic view of contraception or, or even abortion, is that in their minds, uh, the HHS mandate is connected to medicine. Medicine is connected to science. Science is grounded in reason. Your view is faith. Right. And yeah. so there's in their minds a kind of conflict between yeah. faith and reason. That's right. And I think the right way to think about it is that it's really not a conflict between faith and reason. It's a conflict between two different understandings of reason. reason. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so, exactly. so the question is, what is the proper function? What is the, what is the correct ordering of our sexual powers? Is there an end or good to which they're ordered? Uh, the secular says, no. I look at nature and I just see a bunch of stuff. Right. Yeah. Right? Right. right. And whatever... In, uh, end or, dis, uh, or purpose of my sexual powers is the consequence of my will. You know, I sort of impose on nature my will, whereas the traditional, not only Catholic, but Christian and actually noble pagan view is that nature itself has a intrinsic purposes to it and we discover it. Okay. Uh, but the way in which the secularist presents it as this kind of, uh, instead of looking at it as two, two answers to the same question, they want to turn it into two different subjects. 
This is, this is so huge because it isn't just contraception, abortion, and the definition of marriage. I mean, you go back a century or two, and this, this impulse that defined reason over and against faith still affirmed the soul. Mm-hmm. You know, it still affirmed morality. But there was a shrinkage that was taking place that we have reached an end point for. And I can't help but think that people now are saying that the way we understand reason, it, it doesn't lead to the notion of a soul. It doesn't lead to the notion of a person. It's been mechanized. It's materialistic. We are bodies, biochemical functions. And if you're trying to appeal to anything beyond that, that's faith. You've got to scratch your head and say, that was never faith. That's right. I mean, for yeah. Plato and for Aristotle and classical right. antiquity, this was reason, a robust yeah. reason. And as Pope Emeritus Benedict points out, <laughs> it is reason's dynamic openness to reality, right. not this self-enclosed, yeah. where if you can't prove that by my own canons and of right. reason, yeah. then it doesn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. This is what Giussani calls the religious sense, which is yes. to ask the question, what is the meaning of everything? Yeah. Yeah. A yeah. totalizing yeah. approach to reality. And, and if you don't make room for that, you're being irrational. Right. You're shrinking uh, the reach and proportion of, of reason. And, and that's a stolen base. That diminishes man. That, that's right. W- which I think what you get, I think that one of, the concept, one of the reasons why we're at this place is that you have this kind of, what I, kind of a bait and switch. That is, you have the, 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 um, the claim on the part of the secularists, we're going to have a neutral public square. Everyone can sort of believe what they want about ultimate things. Yeah. But it turns out, though, the rules of the game are set in such a way that only one set of opinions wind up being reflected in the public life. And, of course, they happen to be consistent with the sort of materialist, secular view of reality. And it's done precisely because the rules are written in a way in which certain types of claims are ruled out of bounds and irrational from the outset. Right. Uh, It's it's basically, uh, you know, taking over more and more of, of, of intellectual real estate, so to right, speak, right. that in the past was considered to be perfectly legitimate uh, to inhabit f- uh, by religious believers. But I think you're right that it is growing. And it, I think it's intrinsically ordered to become all-encompassing. Right. Uh, that it isn't like, well, we would like 80% of your worldview. Right. You right. Know, yeah. we, we right. would like 80% of your rhetoric in the public square. We want to dominate and control in an exclusive right. way what you can say and how you can reason when it comes to public morality. And, it, you know, public morality isn't even a comfortable term anymore. Right. And, right. and they believe in, they use the terms such as tolerance, but they have no tolerance for those who disagree with them. They, they, they don't, as the secularists, they don't want us to, you know, be, let bygones be bygones. Yeah. They really do want us to succumb with the HHS mandate and so yeah. many other ways. Yeah, you, you can't have it both ways. I, I think of Marx's definition of man, matter in motion. If he's right, then when you cease to have motion, you're dead. You're just matter. If that's true, then by George, let's legislate that. But if, if Aristotle, Aristotle and Thomas are right, that the soul is the animating uh, force and principle of the body, what the French call elan vital, then if that's true, then by George, we need to legislate that in, instead. It's one or the other. Yes. We are a religious people. And our institutions, at least the Supreme Court told us this a couple of generations ago, they presuppose a belief in God. That's right. And that's the basis from which, you know, our nation ga- grants our rights. It's not from our government, but from, from God himself. Yeah. That's what the founders believed. Yeah. So uh, stay with us on Franciscan University Presents. Plato 
way back in, in ancient Greece, uh, made the observation that the order of the soul is reflected in the order of the commonwealth. It's picked up by, of course, Aristotle, Cicero, and so forth, other great thinkers throughout history. In other words, you know, if uh, more people are rightly formed, if their souls are rightly formed, the greater the possibility that the political order, that the community is going to be rightly formed, the politics, the social life is going to be the way it should be, the way a healthy political order is supposed to be. I think our great problem right now is that uh, we have such poor formation uh, on, the, on the part of so many people. So um, you know, the important thing is to have the right principles. And I think with youth you see this particularly, by the way, that um, a lot of youth are just swept, swept along by, I think, uh, prevailing thinking, which reaches them in a whole bunch of, of sort of uh, um, uh, unfortunate ways, whether it be mass media, whether it be peers, whether it be Hollywood, you know, uh, a whole range of things which are themselves no great paragons of morality or virtue or common sense even. Explore the treasures of your Catholic heritage on a Franciscan University pilgrimage. Led by inspiring spiritual directors, you'll walk in the footsteps of saints and martyrs in the Holy Land, Poland, France, and Italy and you'll deepen your love for Jesus Christ through daily mass, confession, prayer, and the joy of Christian fellowship. Let Franciscan University lead you on a pilgrimage of faith. Find out more at franciscan.edu slash pilgrimages. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. Uh, this entire program springs forth from the very heart of Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. Uh, our, our taping today is happening right here in our communication arts studios. Uh, all the, the camera and the equipment are being operated by our students. Our panelists uh, are theology professors here at the university. Um, and today we've been talking with Dr. Francis Beckwith. Uh, the book, uh, Politics for Christians, a great, great book and a really wonderful conversation uh, today about politics, how it's, it's much broader. Uh, we, we talked a little bit uh, about, in the last segment, about <clears throat> the, the separation of church and state and the, the real interaction between them. So, so now looking forward at, at Christians in the public square, um, you know, is there a right place where we have to either check our, our faith at the door uh, or do Christians really need to be more engaged in the public life? I think I think they have to, they have to be more engaged um, for for a variety of reasons. One, uh, if, if for no other reason than to be concerned about the rights of the church. Mm. That is, uh, and, and what I mean by the church is just not the institutional church, but believers and their right to exercise their faith in either their business enterprises or their private life uh, or their public life. Mm. Uh, what you, what you see today, unfortunately, is an understanding of uh, religion and religious liberty, which limits it to sort of the, pri the private you self. You're being shut out. Uh, that, that's right. So, so f for instance, um, you have uh, cases uh, just recently um, uh, of uh, people in, in professional, professional life, such as uh, photographers, uh, bakers, uh, right. florists, uh, that, uh, and these are all professions, by the way, that engage in activities that are almost artistic forms of expression, right? So you had ca a, a case uh, in New Mexico recently where uh, Elaine Photography, uh, run by Evan a couple of evangelical Christians, uh, was, uh, they, they were asked by a prospective client to take photographs at a same-sex ceremony. Right. They don't have, uh, same-sex marriage is not legal in New Mexico, but they were asked. And, and the uh, woman, Elaine, wrote a, actually a very 
nice note and said, I really can't do it. I'm not, I, you know, it's in, as a Christian, I, I, for me to cooperate with my talents and gifts right. in something that I consider to be unethical, is, is, is violates my conscience. Right, right. Uh, she was uh, immediately, um, uh, well, soon after that, uh, the couple filed a grievance with the Human Rights Commission of, of New Mexico, and she was fined, I think, around $9,000. Right. And then eventually she lost, after going up the, the ladder in the court system, she lost in the, in the Supreme Court of New Mexico. And in one of the current concurring opinions, the judge told Elaine Photography, that is the price you have to pay yeah. to, to have a business. And, and, and this is not going to go away no, it's you know, in get three worse. to five years. It's getting and worse. I think worse. we have to trace this trajectory boldly and cautiously yeah. uh, and recognize that it is going to get worse. Yeah. You know, and for the time being, I think our own role in politics is going to be personal influence, friendship, where providence puts us in positions where we can slow it down, you know, as a, as a friend of mine puts it, so that we can learn how to lose more slowly. <laughs> well, but I, I, also, I have a little bit more optimistic you know, view. Yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, at this point, yeah. we're not, I mean, it isn't like in five years, we're gonna elect the president and say, hey, look, yes. it was nice while it lasted, but yeah. let's get back to traditional yeah. morality and it, it's yeah. an, let's enforce that. Yeah. Our kids and our grandkids are gonna face a different situation that's that is gonna change drastically. That's, that's right, I mean, you, you find, uh, and what's, what's interesting about this transformation is that, is that years ago, in, probably in the 80s, there were a number of, of political philosophers who, who wrote uh, about uh, what they call political, it's a kind of term of art in philosophy called political liberalism. And their, their chief argument was that uh, on matters over which reasonable citizens disagree, the state should sort of restrain itself and not be coercive. So according to, to, to the kind of the liberalism that was dominant in the 80s and 90s, the idea that uh, the state could coerce somebody on a matter concerning sexual morality, which, you know, in, in a sense, people have dis different views on, would in fact be quite offensive. I mean, right. political- right. Much less wedding photography. That's right. So, <laughs> right. so, so, so it, it, what's happened, though, is, uh, is that we've shifted from a kind of uh, political liberalism to a new type of confessional state. A totalitarian and, and, state. And, and, and Indoctrinating. So, 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 so before, you know, there was a sense in which Christians and non-Christians could sort of live together, understand there's going to be a kind of a play in the joints in some places and that, that we may disagree, but we understand we, you know, we're all sort of reasonable. But now what's happened is that I, I, I kind of think that that was a sort of in-between time that really couldn't last anyways. It's a strategic, <laughs> yeah. it's a strategic. Yeah, I mean, era. part the of camels, it is a kind of, you know, I've, I've, talked, I've talked to Christians who lived in Malaysia, Indonesia, and elsewhere, where they got along great with Muslims, you know, until yeah. suddenly there was a majority. Yeah. And, and, and what we're facing is a kind of secularistic Sharia. Yeah. Which right. is imposing itself gradually because now they can't and they're going to do as much as they can. So, well, it, so how, it, do we do, how do we deal with this? Well, how, how can well we, you resist. Uh, I, right. I think there's a, a kind of implicit counsel of despair in, in that description you gave us uh, from your friend. <laughs> I didn't finish. <laughs> oh, well, okay. But it, it seems to me if, if you use this as a metaphor uh, for, for faith, it's a house. What the secular order is telling us is, look, you guys go live in the garage or the cellar or the vestibule. We're relegating you to all of those distant rooms. But how can you do that uh, to God? I That's mean, right. you know, Dante says God is, is he whose center is everywhere, his yes. circumference nowhere. Uh, how do you squeeze him out? How do you marginalize God? We want him in every room. 
know, That's the right. bedroom, the parlor, the kitchen, not, not just the vestibule, not just on Sundays. Right. That's right. I, so, I, I, yeah, I think, I mean, I think one reason why, I, I, don't, I don't think there's a, a vast majority of secularists. I think w w what's happened is that the realization is that at every point, Christians are willing to acquiesce in order to avoid pain. Yeah. And so what happens is, um, you'll find some Christians, okay, I think, for example, same-sex relations are wrong, but, you know, I, you know if, if I sort of come out against or, or to support, let's say, Elaine Photography, right. I know I'll get really nasty emails, people will right. blog about me negatively, it may actually ruin my job prospects, I can't put that on my CV. I mean, so there's this, there's what's, what's a going on, a kind of bullying. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so even yeah. though I don't think uh, that there's a, uh, you know, a, 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 I think there's a, a greater number of seculars to be sure, but it's not the it's vast not number. Well, it's not and the quantity, it's the quality. It's yes. the fact that they are in a higher education, it's that, that they're right. in federal government politics. That's right. And other strategic places but, but, such I mean, as the media. Practice, yeah. But let me, let me say sorry. something, because yeah. in 20 plus years of doing this show, I have never been accused by Regis of having <laughs> a council of despair. <laughs> On the other hand, <laughs> what I would say, you know, we have biblical examples of like Joseph in Egypt under Pharaoh. What are the chances of Joseph ending up a righteous man? And yet he was able to do not only a lot of good for Pharaoh by becoming a prime minister and feeding him and Egypt yeah. and many other nations. We also have Daniel in yeah. Babylon of all places, you know, carried off. And then suddenly because of the graces that he has personally, he's able to bring about a kind of conversion that Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar confesses that the God of Daniel is the God of gods. Yeah. You know, and I think we also have uh, a man like Obadiah, who is a prophet in the court of King Ahab when Queen Jezebel is corrupting things. And he is, he's like leaven in, a, in, in bread that is getting harder, you know. Uh, but at the same time, he's protecting the prophets in 1 Kings 18, hiding them because he knows things are about to turn. You know, and when Elijah, that famous chapter where the, the prophets of Baal are, are defeated by Elijah, I mean, the prelude to that is precisely the meeting of Obadiah, who is an anointed prophet in the court of this pagan king, and Elijah, who's hiding in a cave. Yeah. You know, we have a book of Obadiah. We don't have a book of Elijah. <laughs> you know, you have written a book because you are, you, you are encouraging people to become Josephs and Daniels and Obadiahs. I admit, yes, yes. I'm more of an Elijah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, let's face it, there does come a time where Christians have to recognize that we've got to come out of Jerusalem before 70 AD. We've got to come out of Sodom and Gomorrah when the angels come. We've got to come out of Egypt. We've got to come out of Babylon and go back someplace. You know, I, we're not there. Yeah. But to say that, no, that stopped in history. We yeah. never have to become pilgrims for our family's sake. Yeah. That, I think, is a council right. of despair. Right. Yeah. And, and also, I think when you, when you look at even a more modern example of, of when Pope John Paul II went to Poland, I really think that's, a, that's an inspiring message yeah. for us today. Yeah. When Perfect. Those nine days that he came, when, right. when the Poles came together and they realized as they celebrated Mass, as they looked around and they saw, here are all the Polish people, all the Catholics together, and here are just a handful of communists. They may have power. Power, yeah. But there are many of us. Yeah. Nine I think, days that changed the world. Yeah, yeah, it changed the world, and I think we can do that in America. This, this ethic, which I, I think has uh, spread abroad and taken hold, give in to get along. I, I think you can extract from that a principle that would legitimize the good German getting along with 
the Gestapo when they come down to get the Jew who lives next door. I'll say nothing because I don't want to disturb the peace. I've got kids. Yeah. I've got a job. I've got to protect my assets. That's right. yeah. Where do you draw the line? I mean, Edmund Burke says the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Yeah, and that's right. a kind of recipe for nothing. Right. That, that, that's right. I, you know, years ago, uh, and, and, and Scott remembers uh, Francis Schaeffer. Oh, yeah. Uh, the great Presbyterian yeah. writer who had an influence on my becoming a philosopher. Mm -hmm. he in a book he wrote called the Christian Man A Christian Manifesto, which is... Uh, you know, looking back now as a Catholic, there are parts of it that, I, a, that yeah. I part ways with. But there's a lot of good insights. But there's a lot of good insights. And one of the insights he, he, he says is that the, the principles that he sees that are coming to the forefront in American culture will lead to a time where people will abandon their liberty for peace and prosperity. Yeah. And I, I, ha I, I, I loathe to confess this, but I do think that, that we may be on at the edge of that time. And right. I see this uh, on the part of, of, of friends of mine who are uh, widely known evangelical uh, pastors who are very, very nervous and who I'm not sure when the dam breaks where they're going to be willing to, uh, or where they're going to stand. So, so looking at the odds that are kind of stacked against us, if you will, yeah. and all the, the, the situation in our culture and our world today, uh, what are some of the things that we as Catholics can do to make a better case for uh, our faith in the public? I, 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 think, I, I think that we have to be better Catholics mm. in our private and, uh, lives. I, I mean, the reality is that, that in some ways the church has been hurt in terms of its reputation by the way in which Catholics, uh, both clergy and lay people, have conducted their lives. And, and I think we have to show that the life of Christ can be lived authentically. Yes. You know, that might that's, seem that's small, but that's immense. Right. Think about the Roman Empire. I mean, people were, were persuaded not only by the arguments, but by the lives lived. That's and right. your colleague at Baylor, Rodney Stark, who yeah. started his career as a religious sociologist, somewhat of an agnostic, yeah. but in his book, The Rise of Christianity, shows how living out yes. the, Catholic, or the Christian life is really transformative. Yes. You know, one of my favorite peanut strips was uh, Linus and uh, Lucy walking by that little bird Woodstock with his wings up. What's he doing? <laughs> he heard the sky is falling and he thinks he can hold up the entire sky with those two little <laughs> yeah. and they walk away laughing. And Woodstock thinks one does what one can. Yes, <laughs> that's it. That's and I think right. what married couples do, I, re I remember at Marquette in a doctoral seminar, it was a throwaway line, this professor, Father Keefe, who was not only a brilliant theologian but a jurisprudentialist too, who taught at the law school. He interrupted himself and just you know, we were discussing Newhouse's Naked Public Square, and he said, you know, if Catholic couples just simply lived out the power of the sacrament, the covenant of their marriage, that indissolubility, that love, in 40 years, our society would be Christianized without a politician. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know, and I just thought, yeah. wow. You know, I wasn't even a Catholic yet, but I realized there was a profound and penetrating insight there yeah. Yeah. that if we yeah. live out the grace that we celebrate, it's going to transform our society. That's right, and and also the way in which we, I, part of that is, is 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 when we live out when we live out our lives authentically, as Christians, when we present our arguments, because arguments do have to, have right. to play a That's role. Right. We should do it in a with a sense of humor right. and a winsomeness, right. and I and not 
you know, seem kind of uptight. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's part of it is, is to have, you know, to show a kind of joy. Yes. Right. And yes. it's that's sometimes difficult. It's infectious, though. I mean, too. you know, you it's know, difficult sometimes. But joy is what everyone's looking for. That's, that's right. Not just pleasure. Yeah. You know, yeah. joy is irresistible and irrefutable, yeah, especially when you're just bearing witness to that's your right. own experience. That's right. Yeah, yeah I mean, if, if in advancing your, your thesis, you betray a kind of neurosis uh, and, and you cling uh, in, in, a, in an unhealthy way uh, to your faith, then people are entitled to ask, what the hell is the matter with <laughs> Catholic yeah. Christianity? It, yeah. it, it invites uh, psychosis. Uh, yeah, you need to exude a kind of joy and an affirmation about the goodness of what you're doing uh. and make it infectious so that others are, are, are somehow uh, captured, charmed. Perfect, perfect. Stay with us on Franciscan University Presents. Here at Franciscan, I'm in a program called the Center for Leadership, which is concerned with creating good moral Catholic leaders in the laity, uh, people who aren't going to be priests and nuns or follow a religious life because we have to do just as much work as they will in uh, perfecting the culture. So uh, for example, I want to be a political analyst. So after completing this program, I'd be able to go out and use what I've learned through reason and through faith to try and change things and shine a light on issues in our government and social world today. My name is Joseph Frelich. I'm a chemistry major, biology minor here at Franciscan University. I love the atmosphere, just completely centered around the Catholic faith. When I play soccer, when I'm in classes, everything is, has that same Catholic attitude. Myself and a few other chemistry majors had the opportunity to work with top scientists in order to combat neglected diseases. I was able to connect my love for chemistry and also my love for mission work by synthesizing chemical compounds. Franciscan University is academically excellent and passionately Catholic. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. Today we've been talking about politics and Christians uh, with our special guest, Dr. Francis Beckwith. We've come to our final segment, so Regis, could you uh, kick us off? Uh, yeah, I like that word, <laughs> kick us off. Because there is an idea that has been sort of kicking around here, but it's largely uh, remained dormant. And, and I think it, it needs to be part of an argument that we advance uh, in, in this public conversation that we'd like to have with the secularists. And, and that is to tell them uh, over and over and ingeniously and aggressively and without apology that to be an atheist is, is really to be sort of subhuman. It's an aberration. It's a kind of sickness. Man is a religious being. And, and this is not an insight peculiar to the Gospels. This antedates Christianity. Good pagans recognize this. I mean, this is what Tacitus said, who wrote the annals of the Roman Empire, and asks himself the question, what constitutes the city? And he said, it's not the emperor, it's not wise laws, a just constitution, it's not the army, it's the temples of the gods. Mm. And we don't have temples of the gods. We have TV, we have internet. <laughs> yes. We need to have people see the cathedral spires and to be drawn uh, to that, uh, that beacon of hope because there's nothing else. And if the state, society won't make provision for religion, then it is an inhuman 
society. I mean, man needs to be able to develop himself, not just materially, not just fraternally, but in terms of adoration, worship of God. The state has to make provision for that. Wow. I'm sort of arguing for a kind of confessional society. Mm-hmm. It's not going to happen yeah. anytime <laughs> soon. We need to seed uh, an authentically Christian culture first, but this is a beginning. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Scott. I like what you just said. I mean, mm. we're not going to succeed, so why compromise? <laughs> why not go down uncompromised, you know? Yeah. And then watch our Lord raise us up. You know, the fact that religion and morality are weird to a whole new generation, the weirdification of traditional religion and morality is the most ultimately weird thing of all, and yet it's the air we're breathing, the water we're drinking, but it's not going to be forever because God is real and true. And I think what you just said earlier about living the Catholic life, you know, and doing it with a generosity and a joy, it's the key. Uh, You know, I I think of Father Bernie, this Pittsburgh priest who came back from Rome and came to a Polish parish and, you know, his first, you know, his advent in this, he looks down the aisles and there are like 90 Christmas trees. He's like, what's going on? And this Polish lady says, we have a hundred, but we don't, we don't, we only have 90. And he said, woman, it's enough to have these, you know. (laughs) And she turned around, muttered something and walked out. he knew she'd cursed him. He said to the custodian, she cursed me. No, no. Father, what she said was, with God, always more, never less. And now, Father Bernie's Archbishop Hebda in new work. I I heard this when he was giving a retreat in Rome. And I just think that with God, always more, never less. Generosity Mm. and joy. He won't be outdone in generosity. Mm. And I also think of what you were saying about the nine days that changed the world. Our Lady of Czestochowa has, like a mother, revived the soul of the Polish Catholic peoples. It's got a long way to go, it's got a lot of crises, but I just came back from Our Lady Guadalupe. And there you see, you know, it was the new Spain, and then when they cast off Spain, they were going to cast off the faith, except that she had united herself as a mestizo, you know, to the Indians, converting nine or ten million, and suddenly the faith was not reducible to Spanish politics. And so the people, though they have corrupt Masonic rulers, you know, for centuries or whatever, that faith is so strong. Mm -hmm. And I also think of what Our Lady of America has done, although most Catholics don't know about her. I also think of Our Lady of Fatima. Russia will be converted. Stay tuned. The end of the story has not <laughs> come. There's a lot of cause for hope and joy and generosity. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah, you know, anytime we're all situated in history, at some point in history, and so we tend to think, <laughs> uh, we tend to think, you know, the end is near that's because right. it seems near and near to us, right? But think about Augustine. Right, <laughs> seeing the barbarians, uh, you know, breaking down the gates and and think it's it's over. Right. Well, a lot of things happened since him. Right. You had a, a, a restoration of of culture. You've had a decline in restoration. I think the thing we I think we have to have first off confidence, confidence that it it may the changes that we want or the changes we desire, the conversion of people may not be in our lifetime. Right. On the other hand we still have to make the public argument and the public witness. And several years ago, I was giving a talk at Texas Tech University, and it was at the law school, and I was talking about these issues in politics and religion, and one of the, uh, one of the professors that was in the audience stood up during the question and answer period, and he said, uh, Professor Beckwith, all you've given us are religious arguments. Mm-hmm. And I looked at him and I said, Wow, I'm relieved. I thought you were going to say they were bad arguments. <laughs> now, the, and it was, it was a moment of a, a kind of intellectual epiphany. Uh, 
I, it occurred to me at that, at that moment that what this gentleman was doing was by putting the, the adjective religious in front of my point of view, it sort of intellectually sequestered it yeah, right. as sort Invalid. of beyond mm -hmm. and outside the public discourse. And it, and it was at that point that I, I began, this was about 10 years ago, I began writing and thinking more about the problem of being able to communicate our views as reasonable and rational. So in the, in the current debate over the HHS mandate, there's a sense in which our fellow citizens who don't think the Catholic view is correct think of our view as similar to our view of transubstantiation. Yeah. They, they don't see it as something that can be reasonably defended or presented. And I think that's partly our fault. Right. We, we tend to just appeal to religious liberty, which is, I think, perfectly correct and appropriate. But we also have to make the argument outside the court that this is a reasonable view to hold. It's one that mm. ha it has an ancient roots. The smartest people in history have believed it. These arguments are good. You may not accept them, but that, that's fine. And, and believe it or not, I think that in some ways may sway people not to obviously embrace our view, but to say, I understand why Catholics hold it, we should respect them and uh, allow them to conduct their business consistent with their worldview. Right. Mm -hmm. That is great. Well, thank you for being on the program, for joining us here at Franciscan University. Uh, if you've enjoyed today's program, we have a free handout for you, uh, uh, Government Forms or Deforms uh, the Soul by uh, Francis Beckwith. It's available for download at faithandreason.com or just for asking for it, we'll send this off to you. Um, we're talking about politics, and I, I think it would be no surprise that we we see this from a very different vantage point as Catholics. And I think the first thing we need to realize is that this is a spiritual battle and that there is only one way uh, to begin this and to completely end this is on our knees uh, in prayer uh, because our nation uh, founded on these godly principles needs to return to it and only return to it uh, with the uh, providence of Almighty God. So we need to pray, but I also think uh, we need to change the way we think. Uh, much like we talked about the, the nine days that changed the world, I think we need to realize that we are still the sovereigns of our country, that we the people are the ones uh, that really need to take uh, the action and step forward. And three, I just think we need to do something. Uh, whether it's actually getting involved in uh, some committee in your, your parish or your community, running for office, whatever it might be. Uh, and also, politics is downstream from culture. There are many ways to influence and affect uh, politics. Uh, so just do something. Um, Franciscan University's mission is to form the students who are going to be transforming the world. And I want to invite you to be a part of our mission here at the university. Maybe that's uh, coming to take classes and get your degree at Franciscan University or online or through our distance education. Maybe it's joining us for one of our, our vibrant and dynamic summer conferences or joining us on a pilgrimage to holy shrines around the world. Uh, whatever it might be, I want to invite you to be a part of this. Uh, to come to faithandreason.com. We have some of the, uh, the folks here on our our programs, uh, giving you great insights, great tools uh, to live the evangelization that the popes have been calling for. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. To download the free handout on today's topic, go to faithandreason.com. Email your request for the handout to presents at franciscan.edu. At faithandreason.com, you can also purchase past episodes of Franciscan University Presents, or request today's free handout and purchase past programs by calling 888-333-0381. That's 888-333-0381.
or call 740-283-6357.